Hello, Frighters. I'm Holland Elise, and this is Fight or Fright. What up, what up, what up, lovely, amazing Frighters, and welcome to episode 30 of Fight or Fright. I can't believe I'm already at 30 episodes. It's freaking crazy, and I can't believe it. You guys are amazing, and thank you for listening to 30 episodes of this voice in your ear holes. It means a lot to me, and I have a doozy for you for episode 30. Oh gosh, guys, just get ready for this one. This week, I will be talking about the Stainer Brothers, both quote-unquote famous in their own right, but for very different reasons. So the Stainer Brothers are Carrie and Stephen. They were born to Kay and Delbert Stainer in Merced, California, Carrie was older and was born August 13th, 1961. Then there was Stephen, who was born April 18th, 1965. They seemed like a fairly typical family. Carrie loved his little brother. He would play with him. He would bring him with his friends. And he just, he loved his little brother. They were a close-knit family unit. I mean, they were kids, you know, sometimes growing up when you're in like a small town or anything like that, it's you kind of just have each other growing up and they they can sometimes be your best friend. Their age gap isn't much different than the gap between my sister and I, whom I've always loved, admired and looked up to. And same with my brother. I mean, my brother and I are closer in age than that, but I can understand the dynamic in some situations as kids. Your siblings are like your best friend because you just, it's you guys against the world sometimes. And by all accounts, the family was like any other normal family. They, they probably had their ups and downs like every family does, but on a whole, there seemed to be love in the house and they seemed to love each other very much, especially Carrie and Steven. But that all changed when Stephen turned seven years old. It was December 4th, 1972, when two men approached Stephen on his way home. This day would change the family's life and the dynamics in the family forever. These men were Irvin Murphy and Kenneth Parnell. Kenneth Parnell a.k.a. Major Jack Wad. From all reports I read, Kenneth was a master manipulator and convinced Irvin, who was easily manipulated, that he was called upon by God to spiritually guide a young boy. And that's where Stephen came in. Stephen was a trusting, outgoing, sweet, adorable young boy. He came across these men on his way home, and they said that they were looking for church donations. He told these men that his mother would probably be willing to donate, and the men took this opportunity to coax a reluctant Stephen into their car to bring him to his house to get his mom's donation. As every podcast I listen to always says, grown-ass adults don't need a kid's help for anything. They just don't. If an adult I'm sorry, but if an adult is asking a little kid for help, 
you're, that's just creepy. And your freako radar should be going off like, woo, 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 or like, freak, 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 freak. It's just not normal. An adult doesn't need to need a kid's help. It's just, they don't. And as I said, fucking Jackwad Parnell got Stephen into his car and abducted him. He was able to manipulate Stephen into thinking that his parents didn't want him or love him anymore. And he was told this so often that he completely believed his parents did not want him. And for seven years, he stayed with Kenneth Parnell, abducted and missing. He didn't try to leave because he believed what Kenneth Parnell said and that his family didn't want him and that his parents gave him to Kenneth Parnell and now Parnell was his legal guardian. Parnell even had him go by the name Dennis Parnell to go along with the story that he was his child. His family grieved and still tried to keep hope while he was gone, which I can only imagine would be really fucking hard to do. And I really feel for his family because I can't imagine how hard it must have been for them. And of all accounts, Stephen wasn't going to wasn't going to leave. Stephen was resigned to the fact that this was his life now. He was given up. His parents didn't want him. And now he had this awful jackwad to deal with. But seven years after his abduction, after being sexually abused, just just horrible things, this mindset changed because Parnell decided that Stephen was getting too old. Like, ugh, I, that's, I'm so great grossed out by that. Uh, Stephen was 14. He was quote unquote too old. It's just disgusting. But because he was quote unquote too old, Parnell wanted to abduct another boy. At first, he tried to get one of his friends, Barbara Matthias, who allegedly also molested Stephen to abduct another boy, but she failed to do this. Again, allegedly, blah, blah, blah. She wasn't convicted of anything. So allegedly. Then Jackwad Parnell tried to get Stephen to do this task, but Stephen intentionally sabotaged this abduction attempt. Finally, Jackwad went to one of Stephen's girlfriends, Sean Poorman. He bribed him with drugs and money. And when it was getting close, Sean tried to back out. But with manipulation and probably fear, Parnell got him to go through with it. Sadly, this time was successful and thus a disgusting feat on Parnell's part. Stephen got a quote unquote brother. God, he's despicable. But Stephen was like, oh, hell no, this ain't happening. He saw himself in this poor boy, this boy named Timothy White, who was scared and terrified and crying. And Stephen was like, hell no, I ain't letting this happen. He even later would say that he could do something about it. Like, once this, he knew what happened and he could do something about it. So 16 days later, after taking, after Timothy White was abducted, Stephen took Timothy's hand and led him in the middle of the night on a walk from their remote cabin that Parnell had them living in. And they walked hand in hand 
to a police station in civilization so that they could report what happened. Both families were overjoyed and excited to see their boys again. I mean, who wouldn't be? And since they could tell the officers, especially Stephen, because he'd been with him for seven years, they could tell him who who Parnell was. And so this is where I'm going to talk about the punishment. And guys, hold on tight and get ready to get pissed. Like I said before, Barbara received no punishment. Sean Poorman did a short stint in juvie. Irvin Murphy served two of a five-year sentence and was released in 1983. Kenneth Parnell only served five of an eight-year sentence and was released in 1985. Like, seriously, what the hell? How could he only get five years for abducting two boys, sexually abusing one of them for seven years? And I mean, the list goes on. Especially because this wasn't the first time he was in jail. Parnell was arrested before he took Stephen for the same thing. He was a convicted child molester. So seriously, this is your like second and third strike or attempt. And you're saying that he only gets five fucking years. That's so messed up. And Stephen never really recovered from this. I mean, it was seven years of trauma and sexual abuse and probably manipulation and brainwashing. He was used to drinking, smoking. He was kind of, he had no rules. He could do whatever he wanted. And then after seven years, he got home and he had rules. He had consequences for his actions. He had responsibility. Like normal kids that are his age would have, but he was so used to a different lifestyle And during his formative years, that was the lifestyle he had. So it was really hard for him to adjust coming back. And he would even say that sometimes he wondered if it would have been better for everyone if he just hadn't returned, which is a really sad thought. Like, that's really messed up that this poor guy is saved. And that was what he wondered. I mean, I know it's only normal and it like, it's just so sad And on top of dealing with all of this and the new struggle of this new kind of life that he has to get used to, he was bullied in school for the sexual abuse he endured for seven years and made fun of. Like, fuck middle school and high school, am I right? But it was so bad that poor Stephen dropped out of school. And around this time, he was also kicked out of his home by his dad because the tension was so high in the house since he couldn't really get used to the lifestyle after seven years of what he went through. I think that the problems were probably exacerbated by the fact that Stephen did not go to therapy and he was hounded by the media all the time. First family vacation, First time going fishing with his dad after returning home. First Christmas after returning home. The trial of Kenneth Parnell. Everything. They were always there. His life was definitely hard. And some people that knew him said that they think he never really stopped being Dennis Parnell. Even when he came back and was able to reclaim his identity as Stephen, he never really stopped being that little boy that was trapped, that was scared manipulated, abused, and he was just trapped in an older person's body. Also, as they think on it, there 
in a way surprised that he even survived his teens, whether it was because Parnell did something to him or because of completing suicide, because he talked about that. Like I said, his life was never the same and he was never the same after this incident. He tried to seem normal and act the way people, he thought people thought he should act. But as one can expect, he was dealing with inner demons. And after dropping out of school, he took a lot of odd jobs. He went from job to job with nothing really sticking for him. He just really had a hard time getting a handle of his life. But then he met a woman named Jody Edmondson. They dated for a while and got married. He was 20 years old and she was 17, but they were in love. Their marriage still had its stressors because of all the things in the past that he had to deal with. And in a way, they were kind of off and on again because they would sometimes separate just because of the strains but there was a lot of love there. They did love each other. And yes, there were separations, but he also wasn't going to a therapist and he wasn't talking about his issues and overcoming them. And it put a strain on their relationship. And this isn't saying that like therapy is right. I mean, I I do therapy and it helps me. I'm not judging him for not going to therapy. I'm just saying that he... It added, it added stress to their relationship because he really didn't have an outlet to let go of everything that happened to him in his childhood. The couple had two kids. By 1989, he was kind of starting to get, get his shit together. It wasn't perfect, and it probably never would be. I mean, what happened to him is horrific and awful, but it was getting better. He'd ha- had a stable job for a little bit now at a pizza hut. He also went in front of the Ways and Means Committee of the State Assembly with his mom to increase the penalty for child kidnapping. And he wanted parents to have the ability to get their children fingerprinted. He did a lot of interviews. As I said before, the media kind of hounded him, but he didn't turn down interviews And most of the time he wanted to do them so that he could raise awareness for child kidnappings and what happened to him. He once even said, why pay $100 for a psychologist when I have the media to talk to? It was, that's paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. He had books, TV movies, and he was speaking at assemblies for kids to teach them to be safe. Like I said, He was probably about to be just on that. He was at the height of it and he was almost on his way to just having that better life and creating that better life. One of the reasons is because he, the TV movie was almost finished. He signed away the rights to his life story and all of that. And, but with that and with the media, He was hounded all the time. And so he had to keep reliving and reliving and never really fully dealing and coming to grips with what happened to him. So now with this TV movie, that was the last thing in place. And then he was going to be able to just go on and live his life. So the fact that that was pretty much done and then he was going to be able to be done with it kind of just made things look up for him. But tragically, on September 16th, 1989, his life was tragically cut short. 
On this night, it was raining and he had a motorcycle, which he was not licensed for, but he had a DUI, so he couldn't drive a car. So that was basically his mode of transportation to be able to get around and get to work. It was, like I said, it was raining. And because he had a motorcycle, his manager said, just use the Pizza Hut delivery truck. But Stephen didn't want to do this because he didn't have his license. If something happened, he didn't want to get the company in trouble. So he refused to use that car and just was like, I'll, I'll use the motorcycle. It's fine. Blah, blah, blah. So in the rain, he got on the motorcycle. And when he was on his way home, a car pulled out in front of him and he died. The driver that hit him did a hit and run and eventually was found. I think it was in Tijuana and was later brought back and charged with manslaughter and some other charges related to the hit and run. Jody had going home inscribed on his coffin because she felt that he was going to a place that will be much better than his life on earth. But he will be missed. And he wasn't just missed by his family. He was missed by a whole lot of people. One of those people attended the funeral and sat in the back with a older woman and man. They sat together in the back of the church at the funeral, not bringing attention to themselves. And this was Timothy White and his parents. And he came because the two stayed in touch through the years. They had a bond. I mean, Stephen saved Timothy's life. And obviously that's something Timothy will never forget or would never forget. So with Timothy, he also got married, had two kids, and became a cop. But tragically, he also died young. He was 35, and on April 1st, 2010, he died of a pulmonary embolism. So sudden, so sad, and both of these deaths were so tragic. And finally, I know you all were wondering what happened to Jack Wad after being let out way too fucking soon. Well, in 2004, Jack Wad Parnell was caught up in a sting operation because he was trying to buy a freaking four-year-old. He went back to prison and died a few years later. I mean, personally, I think that was way too easy for him, especially for the tragedy that hit both of his victims. But I mean... He's no longer with us, and he ended up going back to jail, I I guess. But it's just not really satisfying, especially what because of what happened to Steve and Timothy and how they died so young and so tragically. It's just awful. Like I said, though, this is a tale of two brothers. So it's not just one. Now, let's get to the older brother who is a complete and total 180 from his hero of a younger brother, Stephen. This is the darker Stainer brother, Carrie Stainer. So I will say this once and never again during the rest of this, but the guy did have a sucky childhood. He was close to his brother who was kidnapped, then came back and then died at a young age. He felt that his parents neglected him while they were grieving the abduction of Stephen and on top of that, the uncle that Carrie was staying with 
was murdered about a year after Stephen died suddenly and tragically. So in 1997, Carrie had a job as a handyman working at Cedar Lodge near Yosemite National Park. It was in the town of El Portal, and this was near one of the entrances to Yosemite. Also in 1997, he was arrested for possession of marijuana and meth, but those charges were dropped. But in what I'm going to say in the following, I think we will all agree, maybe they shouldn't have been. I mean, it's that's actually really stupid. No, I I don't I don't mean that because I think that especially with like marijuana, just I feel like people that do drugs get way too much jail time and things. I don't know. That's a whole different story for a whole different day. But Carrie does some awful things. Like I said, he's the darker brother. So when it comes to that, he was working at Cedar Lodge near Yosemite National Park. And now I'm going to go into a story of three women that were just trying to have a vacation at Yosemite National Park. So Carol, who was 42, and Julie, and a family friend who is around Julie's age, all went to Yosemite National Park. They stayed at the Cedar Lodge, which would end up being a fatal decision because little did they know that Carrie was watching them through the window and he went into the room, basically said that he was desperate and blah, 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 and then coaxed the girls into the bathroom where he tied them up and then he killed Carol, put her in the trunk of his of her rental car, and then went back in. He is disgusting and tried to have Sylvina and Julie perform sexual acts on each other, but Sylvina couldn't stop crying, and so he brought her out of the bathroom. He ended up killing her, and then he went and sexually assaulted Julie. He then brought Julie to the next room because like I said, he was a handyman there. So he had the keys to those rooms. He brought Julie to the next room and made sure that she wasn't able to see Sylvina's body. He then raped her again in the other room and then tied her up. When he tied her up, he then went into the other room to take care of the crime scene for Sylvina. He put Sylvina in the back of the rental car with Carol and then cleaned up the room to the point where it looked exactly as if they had just checked out and left. I mean, he even thought of like getting his hair off of the sheets. And when police eventually asked him about this, he says, he said, something along the lines of, I watched Discovery Channel. Like, okay. I mean, I I do too. I guess I do watch Investigation Discovery, which is part of Discovery. So I, I can kind of understand it. Anyway, I mean, I can't understand anything that he does, but whatever. So he then wrapped Julie up and put her in the front of the car and drove her to a location. He then 
told her that he loved her because he had become quite attached to her. She wasn't frantic. She was calm. She wasn't freaking out. And right before he killed her, he told her that he loved her. And then he cut her throat and left her there and then got in the car and drove off with the other bodies in the trunk so that they wouldn't be found together. So he drove far away and then with Carol and Sylvina's bodies in the trunk, he then set fire to the rental car. The fire was so bad that they had to identify Carol and Sylvina with dental records. I mean, that's how bad it was. And Carol and Sylvina were found first. Their bodies were discovered before Julie's. And once those two bodies were discovered, the police received a note with a hand-drawn map indicating the location of a third victim, Julie. The note said, we had fun with this one. The investigators went to the location of this makeshift hand-drawn map and they found Julie with her throat cut. When these bodies were found, Carrie was actually interviewed. He was one of the people that they looked into because he worked at the motel. So since he was one of the people they looked into, but he just seemed like a normal average dude. He didn't have a weird look about him. He he remained calm. He had no history of violence, no record. There was nothing that immediately set off alarm bells with the police. But then there was a fourth victim. Her name was Joy. On July 22nd, 1999, Joy Armstrong, a 26-year-old Yosemite nationalist, was found. Investigators believed that she was murdered the day before. They questioned Stainer and checked his truck, and they didn't find anything, so they let him go. But they were they were still on to him. They they knew that they just they wanted to look more into him. So they tracked him down at a nudist camp in California on July 24th, 1999. Because as an article I read during my research stated, he was a recreational naturalist. And that's how he met Joy. He met Joy at like a naturalist retreat, something like that. And they struck up a conversation. And again, not a great decision on his part. It was really, really sad. She was decapitated. It was brutal. And this was the fourth victim that was killed near Yosemite. So... Eyewitnesses saw a blue 1979 International Scout parked outside the cabin Joy was staying in. Detective traced this detectives traced this back to Carrie. FBI agents got in on the on the hunt for this guy and found him at a nudist resort in Laguna del Sol, California. Stainer ended up Carrie Stainer confessed to the murders and he confessed to sending the map that led them to the body of Julie. He admitted he started fantasizing about the murders at seven years old before his brother was kidnapped. During his initial hearing, he pled not guilty by reason of insanity. 
the lawyer said that mental illness in the family and abuse was a big cause in what happened, that he was mentally unstable because of his childhood. Carrie claims that not only were his parents neglectful after Stephen left, but that at the age of 10 or 11, he was sexually molested by one of his uncles. And they they tried to state with mental illness that this was shown in the fact that he asked for child porn in return for his confession. So that means when speaking to the investigators, he asked them for child porn and then he would give them a confession. Like what? What? I, I don't understand. It's to me like when people take a phone call from prison and admit to the horrible thing that they did, not realizing that they're being recorded because you're in freaking jail. But anyway, he was convicted and he was sent to San Quentin. But he did an interview. And I only bring up this interview because he like shaded the police and embarrassed them during this interview. He basically told He basically said in the interview that he basically thought he got away with the triple murder of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. And he pretty much thought he was scot-free because the police came around, they talked to him, they didn't even really look at his truck or look at anything. They just were like, eh, he has no, no record. And so in this interview, he was like, man, I just, I thought that I... I got away with that triple murder. And then he's like, but I couldn't resist killing again. And it was joy that that got him in the end. But it also came out later that a year before he killed the the four women, he was going to rape and kill his girlfriend and her eight and 11 year old daughters. But there was a male caretaker on the grounds and this piece of shit was afraid of the male And probably that the male would beat the shit out of him, overpower him, and stop him from what he was going to do. So then he just decided to to not go with the girlfriend and them. But anyway, that is the story of two brothers that could not be more different. And all I've got to say is I feel so bad for that, for the parents of those boys, because they lost two kids. I mean, I know that what Carrie did, like he's a piece of shit and what he did was horrible. And those poor women and their families that are never going to get to see them again. It's awful what happened to them. But they lost one of their sons for seven years. And then basically 10 years after he get, they get him back, he is in a fatal car accident, hit and run. So they lose their one son basically lose him twice because after seven years, they probably started having less and less hope that they were going to find Stephen alive if they found him at all. And that's a horrible thought. So they basically lost that child twice. And then they have to deal with the aftermath of their other son being a serial killer who killed one woman and two teenage girls and then another woman in her mid-20s. 
So that family just had a lot of shit thrown on them. And I feel really bad for them. And I know that that Carrie says that he had these urges to kill women before. But to me, and I'm not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, not a counselor. I have no license, no degree in any of this. But I kind of wonder if, I don't know how to put this. I wonder if there's something behind the fact that his brother was kidnapped, he was close to his brother, and then his brother came back. And if there's something behind the psychology of that, that in a way led to what he did. Like I said, I'm not licensed. I'm not a psychologist, psychiatrist, anything like that. But I just find it really interesting that these two brothers who grew up in essentially the same household, but because one of them went missing, the other grew up in a very different way and had to deal with the parents being upset over the other brother. And he probably... I don't doubt that he felt neglected. I mean, their efforts were trying to find their one son that wasn't in front of them. And I could see how to keep Carrie safe, they put stricter rules in force so that they didn't lose their other son too. I don't know. It's just, to me, the psychology would be interesting to know behind if there was something in that abduction of his brother and the aftermath of his parents doing everything they can to find the brother and him feeling neglected if psychologically there's something behind it even though he said he think he that it was before I mean I think it's kind of I just think the psychology behind it would be weird would be interesting to know because I feel like it's weird that these two brothers went on such different paths I mean Stephen was a hero and Carrie was a serial killer so it's just really interesting to me, the dynamic between these two brothers and what could have caused it to go so wrong in a way. Because a lot of times you think the one that was abused, they can sometimes become, not always, but they can sometimes become the abuser. And in this case, it wasn't Stephen that did any abusing. He actually saved a boy's life. Like I said, it's very interesting I would love to like get to know the psychology behind it, but I also just feel so bad for their family. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's really sad. And I feel for that family because they lost both of their sons. One of their sons, they probably thought they lost her twice. I just can't even imagine what happened when they found out that the other son that was still living was a serial killer. So I just... My heart goes out to them. And on that note, that is the story of the two brothers. And so this week for The Fred is Over. Anyway, so this week is going to be a little different for The Fred is Over. It's going to kind of be like the one where I hope that this leads to some of the frights being over. So... <laughs> There's this app that I just found called Crime Door. I posted it on my Instagram, like the moment that I found it. And the Delphi murders are already on there, which like I said, that was what my social media post was about. But this app called Crime Door, it delves into different crimes. Some of them are solved, but some of them are unsolved. 
And basically, I scarred myself for life last night when I used this app. And this app gives you legit crime scene photos in like 3D. So I went to the JonBenet Ramsey one and I saw the crime scene, the basement. Oh my gosh. Mm, I will never be the same. It was horrifying and I am scarred for life. But I think this app is super interesting because what if there is someone out there that's like an armchair detective slash sleuth? And I mean, this is like legit 3D virtual reality, AR, you're moving through the crime scene. It's like you're walking through it. It's honestly insane. And I think that's why it scarred me so much. But I I find the app fascinating and terrifying, but I find it interesting because if there is like an armchair detective or sleuth or someone that's just going to the crime scene photos, and I mean, I doubt that they they would, but someone could see something that no one else really saw. And so I find that app, the app super interesting. And it also talks about different crimes in your area that are both solved and unsolved and gives you like documentaries and news reports and like everything having to do with that case. It's a really interesting app and I didn't hear about it until a complete Google rabbit hole where I then saw something about, it was on, it was like on an Oxygen website and they said that they were going to be adding the Delphi crime scene to this app to virtually have people be able to go through it, which again, I, I, I put this in the fright is over category because I really hope that like this app does lead to some unsolved things getting solved or anything like that. I mean, I find the app fascinating. Yes, I definitely scarred myself with the John Bonet crime scene photos where I legit saw her body. It was horrifying, horrifying. But I think that if there are people out there that can handle it and maybe see something different, that maybe it will bring new light, shed new light on cases that aren't solved yet. So I think it's a really interesting idea and a really interesting app. And I hope that it does. I hope that it does lead to the fright being over and maybe some unsolved cases being solved. So that is the fright is over. And that is episode 30 of Fighter Fright. Thank you guys again for joining me. I really appreciate you guys listening. If you can, please, please, please rate and review. Tell your friends. And you can find me on social media. You can DM me and talk to me at Fight or Fright Pod on Facebook and Instagram. On Twitter, I am Fight Fright Pod. Or you can talk to me on social media. So I am Fight or Fright Pod on Instagram and Facebook. On Twitter, I am Fight Fright Pod. On Gmail, I am fighterfrightpod at gmail.com. And then I'm also on TikTok, fighterfrightpod. So yeah, feel free to reach out to me, DM me. If you have any interesting stories or anything you want to share, 
I would love to hear from you guys. And again, thank you for joining me for the 30th episode. And until next week, guys, remember, don't fight this fright. Adios. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Fight or Fright. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Fight or Fright Pod and on Gmail at fightorfrightpod at gmail.com. Twitter is the only one that's a little bit different in there, and that's at Fight Fright Pod. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it, and it would really help me if you rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Even just spreading the word to family, friends, people you know that enjoy true crime, mysteries, paranormal, all of that kind of stuff. And this is Holland, and I'll see you next week when I tell you another crazy story. And remember, you don't have to fight this fright.